0: Welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, Kevin King and I will interview everyone's favorite shout out, Brian Weiner. We will talk about the history of implementation science, implementation measurement, the jingle jangle fallacy, and we'll quiz Brian on what it means to be a good mentor. I think you'll find today's show to be like a sunset walk on memory lane. Without further ado, let's get started. To that implementation science podcast, I'm your host Mike Pullman, and I'm Kevin King, and we are here today with Brian Weiner. We're so excited to talk to Brian. Brian is a professor in the Department of Global Health and the Department of Health Sciences at the University of Washington. His uh, research focuses on the implementation of evidence based practices in healthcare delivery, and he is involved in um, a plethora of projects. As I'm sure you know from having listened to our podcast. And hearing everyone talk about him is a big influence on their work. So it's so nice to have you here today, Brian.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. How have things been going for this, uh, for you this summer?
1: Excellent. And I'm gearing up for another academic year. I start teaching my course, uh, PhD-level course in Implementation Science, a week from, uh, well, next week on Wednesday.
0: Oh, nice, nice. How long have you been teaching that course?
1: Uh, since I've been here at the University of Washington for seven years, and I taught a similar course Uh, when I was at UNC for about six or seven years as well.
0: It's good to know that there's actual factual knowledge out there about implementation science that it's being delivered in a classroom setting. Uh, It's hard to kind of believe for me as somebody who kind of was along for the ride as implementation science developed, and I think probably you as well. So I think we're we're really excited to talk to you today about some, uh, some of the history and to get your perspective on the development of implementation science would love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, that history and how it uh, has influenced the course that you've been teaching.
1: Be happy to. So, uh, if I can engage in a little bit of storytelling here and it take me about five minutes or so to tell this particular story, uh, I happen to, uh, to be fortunate enough to be in the room where it happened, so to speak, when the field of implementation science really took off. Uh, and uh, so some of the uh, events in the story, I'll be able to relate to my personal experience. I've also uh written a, a fair amount uh about implementation science for textbooks and so forth and I've had a chance to kind of delve into the history a little bit so let me share with you what I what I have learned um and I should start by saying that you know all origin stories are incomplete and and only partially true
0: and it's only the winners that get to define <laughs> that, the origin that's story right
1: That's correct. And so, you know, the further back in time you go, the harder, the hazier sort of people's memories get, the more incomplete uh, the documentations is, even in the era of the internet. It's just, uh, uh, this is sort of what I can piece together uh, based on my personal experience uh, being there and also um, having done a little bit of homework. So I, I think it, it, it's fair to say that implementation science is both new and not new. So on the one hand, uh, researchers in the United States have been studying the implementation of innovative programs in healthcare settings since the 1960s, really with the with the advent of the field of health services research. And I'll speak as a health services researcher, as a healthcare-focused implementation scientist. Because that is uh, in my training and my expertise in my research program. Um, but on the other hand, really, implementation science did not develop as an organized and institutionally supported field of study until much later. Um, we can sort of begin this word and story in 1998, when the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs launched the Query initiative, the Quality Enhancement Research Initiative, to improve the uh, quality of care that... The Veterans Health Administration uh, provides to the veterans uh, uh, in this country. And the VA is the the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. And the Query program really began with nine funded centers, each of them focusing on a a specific disease condition uh, that contributes significantly to um, veterans' mortality and morbidity. And the goal was really to foster collaboration among researchers, clinicians, and operations personnel to promote guideline-based practice and sort of reduce gaps in in routine practice uh, and best available evidence. And the query program-
2: Can Mm -hmm. I I interrupt for a second? Mm -hmm. Who are operations people? I don't think I've heard that term before. Because I mean, I think we often think about implementation as like, let's get researchers and clinicians together and help them figure out how they can sort of cross inform and cross fertilize. But you're mentioning a third person in the room. Who is that?
1: Yes. Yes. So uh, healthcare um, uh, is delivered by healthcare practitioners or healthcare uh, professionals, usually in organizational settings like hospitals or health systems. Mm -hmm. And by operations, I'm really referring to all those people in the health system. So Mm -hmm. those would be the vice presidents of, you know, the vice presidents of nursing, uh, all the executive suite folks, uh, the operations researchers, IT, uh, the people who are the managers, the healthcare administrators, Mm -hmm. and then all those folks who are really responsible for the the operations of that health system. Uh, Even
2: people like the schedulers or the transport people who get uh, patients from one room to another or something, yeah, got it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, And so, you know, what was really quite interesting about the query initiative, and I think for the field of implementation sciences, this was an effort, an intentional effort on the part of the VHA to get the researchers and the operations people and the clinical folks to work together mm-hmm. so that we weren't having researchers kind of off doing their own things and operations folks doing and delivering care uh, uh you know sort of separately um and that sort of attempt to bring implementation research and implementation practice together in the query program was really quite novel uh and innovative for its time and you know with a, it's a it's a tension or a relationship that I think is still one that we're trying to manage in the field of implementation science. Um, But I really can't overstate, it'd be very difficult to overstate the impact that Query has had on the field of implementation science. So in addition to training multiple cohorts of implementation scientists, including several of the big names in the field, The query program has contributed to the development of widely used frameworks and models in implementation science, uh, innovative research designs uh, like the hybrid effectiveness implementation uh, designs, uh, uh, other research methods, implementation strategies, really the impact of query I think is, is um, is an important story to tell in the field.
0: You know, Brian, I've always wondered why the VA VA seems to have an outsized role compared to other organizations at implementation science conferences and in publications. This is the first that I've heard this. And so this is a super helpful explanation. What's interesting, too, it strikes me as interesting, is that during this time, the late 90s, early 2000s, I was working as an evaluator on a system of care project. So the SAMHSA invested, you know, more money in systems of care. is the largest children's mental health research project ever done. I don't know, the largest children's mental health intervention and evaluation project, I guess, that's ever been done. Um, and really addressed a lot of what we would consider to be implementation science principles, really trying to impact the context, getting people to organizations to communicate better, not focused specifically on the interventions themselves, but on creating a context with which evidence-based interventions could be readily readily delivered. However, something got missed there. It didn't take up the mantle of implementation science, but the VA did. Um, I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts about that, like two kind of trajectories that were really set up for this, but one that really grabbed onto it and another one that didn't. You have any thoughts? I don't. Yeah, that's okay. I don't (laughs) need (laughs) that.
2: Well, I mean, maybe to frame it, Brian. Do you have thoughts about what what makes those partnerships successful and have a lasting? I mean, could you could you talk about Query and what do you think has made it so lasting and successful? Maybe that's a way to think about it.
1: That's a great question, and there are colleagues in our field whom I would point you to or direct you to who could answer this question, people who were there in the room when it happened at the time, And Sales being one, Jeff uh, Jeff Kern and some of the other folks, uh, Brian Mitman certainly, uh, who could really speak to that. There's a recorded uh, interview um, with some of these folks out there on the internet that I get a chance to listen to, always fun to dig up these little nuggets Mm -hmm. of history. Really great to, to listen to that conversation, but I, I think to find the, to fill in those missing details, I would, I would direct you to those individuals. That's great. But um, sort of returning back to that story uh, that I wanted to tell. So just a few years later in the early 2000s, the field of implementation science sort of emerged outside of the VA query program in no small part. Uh, through the leadership and funding uh, from the National Institutes of Health. And a a key event in this history occurred in 2002 when the National Cancer Institute in partnership with the Center for the Advancement of Health and the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Foundation convened a, a think tank meeting of researchers, practitioners, and funding agency intermediaries in Chapel Hill, and this is where my personal part of the story comes in, to explore the issues, needs, opportunities and so forth to promote the uptake of evidence-based interventions into policy and practice. And that meeting, which I had the uh, the, the opportunity to participate in because it was being held at UNC Chapel Hill where I was at the time, um, produced many recommendations which were then uh, acted upon that really kind of launched the field of implementation science. And I don't think it was uh, um, I don't think it was a surprise, it, it's really no mystery that this meeting was convened in Chapel Hill because Barbara Reimer, uh, who at that time had just joined the faculty at UNC, was previously uh, the director or the Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, which is the um, unit, uh, the program within the National Cancer Institute that had really kind of embraced dissemination science uh, which is what the field was called before implementation mm-hmm. science label took over. Um, she was a big proponent of that, and I think um, was probably played a, a significant role in having that meeting convened in Chapel Hill. My but guess it gave was the... me an opportunity to be there at this inaugural meeting where uh, a lot of folks who uh, were instrumental in getting this field started uh, kind of convened and and figured out like what's our roadmap, our plan for making this mm-hmm. making this happen.
2: Yeah, and my guess is the price and size of the blue cups that he's not here probably helped that too, right? The, <laughs> if anyone would know, if you don't know Chapel Hill, there's a famous undergraduate bar that sells uh beer in 32 ounce portions called blue cups. And there can be found after an evening of uh hearty partying all over Chapel Hill. Um, but anyway, keep going. That's, that. that's really cool. So, so there's this sort of second uh, what's the right word nucleating event, right? You know, um, Where so after following query, there's sort of another sort of a precipitating event. That's the word I'm trying to think
1: of. Absolutely. Um,
2: That really sort of crystallizes and spurs a lot more. Tell us more about sort of what what comes out of that meeting.
1: Sure. So I I think it's not too much of a stretch to claim that the implementation science as a field was really born from the recommendations, the follow-up on those recommendations from that meeting. and So the immediate impact of those recommendations was the formation of the Cancer Prevention and Control Research Network or CPCRN later that year was uh, jointly funded by the National Cancer Institute and the CDC. Originally, uh, initially consisted of a network of five research centers that brought together academic, public health and community partners to pursue a dual mission uh, and that is to conduct community-based research to accelerate the adoption uh, of evidence-based cancer prevention and control, and also to advance implementation science and practice. So again, you see this really interesting dual focus on disseminating evidence-based interventions and and advancing the science of dissemination uh, and implementation research. The sort of two aspects of that. So uh, there's another thread to this sort of history around the same time. The National Institute of Mental Health was also uh, busy sort of fomenting activity in the field of implementation science. I, I know a lot less about that, but I have been able to learn that they they did issue some funding announcements for dissemination and implementation research and held several workshops uh, um, to advance work in this area. But in 2005, the National Cancer Institute and the National Institute of Mental Health joined forces And in collaboration with six other institutes and centers at the NIH, released the first trans-NIH program announcement on the dissemination and implementation of research in health, or the DIRH uh, program announcement, and concurrently with that, um, co-sponsored a technical assistance workshop uh, to offer researchers an opportunity to learn more about that program announcement, hear from successful NIH grantees uh, who are working in this area, and to get feedback from uh, programs to, uh, officers and so forth about people's research uh, proposals or concepts for that. So I had the, um, uh, again, the, the honor and the privilege and the opportunity to submit my first R01 application to that very first cycle of the DIRH program announcement that came out. My Application scored well uh, and was funded on the second cycle submission. Um, That was very exciting. And I also had the opportunity to attend that technical assistance workshop, which then in 2007 transformed into a, Conference on the Dissemination and and Implementation of of Research in Health, which is now in its 16th year and is as the Academy Health Meeting or the Annual Conference on the Science of Dissemination and Implementation uh, in Health. It was at that meeting that I got a chance to meet for the first time uh, uh, David Chambers, uh, who at the time was working at NIMH and several other folks who subsequently became uh, major leaders in the field. So, 2006, I think, really was that watershed year that we um, for the field. Um, that's when you see the first round of research grants funded under the program announcement uh, for uh, DIRH. Um, you also see, in, in happening simultaneously, uh, the launch of the uh, NIH clinical. Translational Science Awards, or CTSAs. This was part of a much larger, uh, uh, broader effort on the part of the NIH to accelerate the translation of medical biomedical research into routine practicing. And uh, the Clinical Translation Science Awards were a transformation about how uh, uh, clinical research was being funded by the NIH in academic centers. Um, and. Those of you who might have heard about uh, uh, T1 translation and T2 translation, this is where it all sort of originated. Uh, uh, they were uh, able to focus sort of on two translational research bottlenecks, the first one being from uh, biomedical research discoveries um, in, in the lab into new methods for diagnosis and therapy and and prevention. And the second one, the T2 uh, bottleneck, really focused on sort of getting it from um Uh, from clinical applications into routine care. And, of course, implementation science focused on the the T2 translational bottleneck there. So that was another key event that took place. Uh, And the third one that took place in 2006 was the the launch of the open access peer review journal Implementation Science uh, with the co-editors from both uh, the United States and the UK. Uh, The journal was the first international scientific outlet dedicated to publishing research on implementation science
2: i just want to note that uh you know it's no coincidence i think that you described 2006 as a watershed year in implementation science because now 17 years later we finally have a podcast on implementation (laughs) science so it's clearly taken 17 years uh for the developments of that important year to actually make it anywhere significant which is right here on that implementation (laughs) science podcast so (laughs) What a perfect way to set up your appearance on this podcast! That makes me so happy.
0: Um, that's so that's so so interesting to hear about, and it was interesting also to hear about the um, the international collaboration uh, with the development of the journal. Uh, I'm curious how much you know about the history of international efforts in implementation science and how those coincide with or are independent from the work that was done in the US.
1: I know just a little bit. Um, I have been struck, I've been struck for years um, as to how different how different implementation science looks and feels uh, when it's done in a sort of domestic NIH uh, sort of frame or perspective or tradition, and how it's done in the global health context, and especially in low and middle income countries. Uh, And my move from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill to the University of Washington and my entry into a department of global health, having never done any research in global health, really sort of sparked my curiosity as to how it is that we can both be saying we're we're doing implementation science and and we're working in the same field, but it looks and feels so different. Um, I often wondered if we're even talking about the same sorts of things. So I've puzzled over this a great deal over the last seven years since I've been here. Um, And here's what I can say. I know a little bit about that history, not a whole lot, but um, I, I think it's important to recognize that implementation science in the global health context you know really uh it has emerged and is developing in a very different context uh, than it does in the United States um, in low and middle income countries uh the uh, their settings are notably different from the United States in terms of the disease burden uh, affecting the population the demographics of that population, the funding sources and the resource levels that are available for implementing evidence-based practices. uh, Also, the design and the culture of the health systems. Uh, In many low- and middle-income countries, uh, most healthcare services are delivered through the public sector and are organized through a more centralized and less fragmented system. Uh, They actually have a Ministry of Health, which... Many countries do, which we do not have anything close to that here in the United States. So, But it's not just the current context that's really different. Implementation science and global health also developed in different historical contexts, a different institutional context as well. And again, my understanding of this history is a little bit spotty, but a couple of things jump out at me. One is in, in, in 2003, the World Health Organization embraced Uh, implementation science is integral for developing practical solutions to improve access to efficacious interventions against tropical diseases. And two things kind of strike me from that. One is this sort of focus on infectious disease, whereas again, in in the US, the leading agencies are the National Cancer Institute and National Mental Health Institute. So we're talking about uh, non-communicable disease, often chronic disease. Uh, So it's a very different sort of Focus And how the science developed, I think, was certainly influenced um, by the, the particular disease foci of, of these fields, these two different spheres of implementation science. The second, if you, um, if you were listening closely to that, uh, that uh, quote, is this emphasis, again, on uh, it's very practical emphasis. It, instead of the systematic study of methods to uh, improve the uptake of evidence-based interventions, which is sort of how we view implementation science in the US. It's really more about the systematic application of methods uh, to um, enhance programs uh, effectiveness and implementation. So it's got, again, that sort of very sort of practical feel to it. And those two themes, I think, were also picked up uh, in, in, uh, in 2008 when uh, when PEPFAR, the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, adopted an implementation science framework to guide and inform and evaluate the expansion of HIV care and treatment. So again, I'm not an HIV researcher, but I'm trying to remember back. My recollection is that, you know, in the um, uh, early to mid-2000s, we finally had uh, effective antiretroviral treatment. We finally had We finally had effective antiretroviral treatments, or ART. And we learned something very important, which is that treatment is prevention when it comes to HIV. If you can effectively treat uh uh hiv the 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 disease burden uh in individuals who are uh hiv positive you can help reduce the transmission of hiv you can prevent new cases from coming if you can effectively treat and that notion that treatment is prevention that paradigm shift really placed a huge urgency on trying to get as many people who are hiv positive as possible onto effective treatment art so pepfar came along with a lot of money and the goal of how do we scale up ART to millions of people as quickly as possible, all right? that's a very different context in which you say, well, what can implementation science do for us? Um, and it's you can see it's a very practical program, uh, focus, and it's also a focus on scaling something up. Uh, and scale up is not really a topic that we have uh, embraced uh, in the field of implementation science. It's Unclear whether in, in, you know scaling up in, interventions is within the purview of implementation science or is really a separate field, scient- uh, you know, separate sphere of scientific inquiry. Um, so the PEPFAR component uh, program uh, framework, excuse me, just emphasized three components of implementation science. See if you recognize these. They said th- there are three main pillars for implementation science monitoring and evaluation, operations research, and impact evaluation, including modeling and cost-effectiveness analysis. Now, when I saw that, I scratched my head and I said, what? None of those things sound like implementation science. To me, if you submitted an operations research grant to the DIRH, they, they would send it back and say, you know, this is not implementation science. Likewise, if you tried to publish an impact evaluation, evaluation of the impact of a a program uh, to the journal implementation science, they would just reject it and transfer it to some other to some other journal because they would say this is non-implementation science. Um, So it doesn't sound like implementation science uh, from a a US perspective, but it kind of makes sense. Um, It's it's worth noting, and this will be sort of maybe the last thing I'd say here, that there is no field of health services research in global health. So if you ask, who does uh, operations research or impact evaluation in the United States, they'd be my colleagues my health services research colleagues in departments of health policy and management. There's no comparable field of health services research in the global health context. And so what I think you see happening is, is as implementation science develops in, uh, in the global health context and with its emphasis on program implementation, program impact, scale up, that sort of very practical aspect, you see all the sort of uh, methods and subdisciplines of health services research being incorporated into under the umbrella of implementation science because there was no other sort of institutional or scientific field or home for that kind of work. So it's not surprising then that you see implementation science being defined much more broadly in global health than you do in the United States. David Peters, for example, who uh, has really been a leading figure in implementation science in the global health context, defined implementation research as the scientific inquiry into questions concerning implementation stop. <laughs> he said any aspect of implementation is fair game. Uh, whereas again, in the United States, we would say, well, if you're doing impact evaluation, that's a health economics kind of thing. Our health economists in our, in our health policy management uh, uh, departments will typically do that or our operations researchers who might also be in that department uh, or might be in a health system or something like that will will look at how do we increase the efficiency of uh, uh, with which we deliver this. And that Broad definition, I think, works really well for the for implementation science in a global health arena, but it does mean that we sometimes talk past each other and what counts as implementation science uh, in the global health context versus the United States context, I think, is still being um, sorted out.
2: Yeah, you know, to follow up on that directly, what do you think, what are some lessons that you think domestic implementation science researchers or research programs could learn from that sort of big tent approach that's that you're talking about that's seen globally? Or what do you wish? Like, what do you wish, what lessons do you wish we would take from these sort of bigger approaches that, that are seen globally?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, one key difference is that I think implementation science is done more in the service of the ministries of health in those countries. Mm-hmm. So the engagement health of health care policymakers and and policy agencies, so to speak, is much closer uh, in at least from what I can see, um, and those partnerships are stronger between the researchers and sort of the ministry of, uh, uh, of, of health personnel in other countries that you don't see here in the United States. The, the uh, NIH, uh, the National Institutes of Health, they fund science. They're a science organization. They're not a program organization. We have other federal agencies that do programs, um, but we don't have anything like a ministry of health. And we are encouraged really... Focus because NIH funds science so our focus is really on generating scientific knowledge and I, I think that um it's been more of a struggle for us in the United States due to implementation science that's very practical mm-hmm. and is aligned with the practical needs of of people um you, you know funding uh, um, uh health services uh, for people delivering health services for people making policy in health services arena so that's one that's probably one thing that comes to mind.
0: I've been told that in in the United States, you know, that the National Institutes for Mental Health and SAMHSA used to be the same organization, but they split. SAMHSA focusing more on the intervention side, National Institutes of Mental Health focusing more on the research side. And that that bifurcation maybe has resulted in some odd situations now where, you know, it's sometimes difficult to get NIMH on board with uh, implementation science research or purely implementation science types of questions. Mm-hmm. And it's also maybe hard sometimes to get SAMHSA on board because they're really focused on delivering the goods and maybe the closest thing that we have to a ministry of health. Um, I don't know if any of this is true, but that's this is what I've been told. Um,
1: yeah. I, you know, in some ways we really are discouraged as researchers and scientists to, to um, playing in the policy sphere or getting too cozy with policymakers. I've tried to uh, collaborate with uh with folks at the National Cancer Institute and again the the notion is that, that, that the the uh, that there should be somewhat of an arm's length relationship between the funders of science uh, and the scientists. Um, and again, I, there are good reasons for that. Don't don't want to discount those. But again, it's uh, the the cost. I think of that is that there's a, a bit of a separation or distance between sort of the priorities and needs of of those on the practice side uh, and what what researchers are busy doing uh, and what they're getting funded to do. So I would say that practical application and closeness with the practice stakeholders is one that attention to scale-up uh, uh, in, 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 that we see in, in um, the global health context um, and less so in sort of the US context. Um, and the, the greater focus, too, on the implementation of evidence-based practices outside of the health systems. So there are many low- and middle-income countries have health systems that could be strengthened uh, and don't have nearly the kinds of resources or organizational development um, that we do in the United States, for example. Um, and a lot of healthcare, care, a lot of health services are delivered uh, by community health workers or others in, in community settings. And I, again, I think that's another area. There's a lot that we can learn by doing implementation science in low and middle income countries that would be relevant here. Um, and certainly, the notion of really making uh, better use of task shifting and sharing, uh, and um, being able to think about healthcare delivery as something that happens outside, uh, in addition to outside of sort of the exam room or the or the the clinic, um, would be would be a couple of examples. Yeah,
2: I find it interesting because I feel like the um, critique, or the, at least the implicit critique, you're making of of how implementation science is as a field has developed domestically is uh, a really parallels the critique that it seems like implementation science, at least in psychology and mental health has of sort of the original treatment developers, right? The, the critique of that implementation science brings to university-based treatment developers is, hey, look, you just develop your treatment in a lab, you test it in a lab, and then you throw it out in the world and expect people to use it. And now you're sort of saying, hey, look, in a way, we as a field, as implement, I say the royal we, which actually does not include me, um, except when people need me to help them analyze data for their implementation papers. But this is the royal we of implementation science as a field has sort of developed some of those same siloing, right? This sort of siloing from policymakers, siloing from sort of um, non-traditional healthcare delivery systems and healthcare delivery people. I just, I just find that parallel
1: interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And implementation science, as you know, was aims to, or I should say aspires to uh, sort of close that research Mm -hmm. to practice gap um, as a field. And hopefully we'll get into a little discussion later about how successful we have been or what our prospects for doing so are in the future.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and with the goal of closing, I got maybe, you know, in some ways the silos, the resiloing, is just sort of being recreated. That's interesting.
1: Including even within the field of implementation science. Dun, dun, dun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Say, I mean, say more about this. Let's go ahead and transition into this conversation. What, yeah. do, you, what do you think is going on? If you, you had to kind of describe the state of the gap.
1: Sure. So, you know, implementation science is and should be a practical an applied science. Um, And really, the the implementation science, there is an important distinction to keep in mind between implementation science and implementation practice. They're not the same thing. Uh, And I think way too much confusion takes place. The question not is, can we fuse these together or blur the, the difference between the between the two, but rather, can we have a closer collaboration, a closer connection, greater alignment between the two? And really, implementation science, it's a science. It's a scientific activity. What we do is we use research methods uh, and theories and so forth to produce scientific knowledge, or knowledge that at least we as a community of scientists have decided passes muster for scientific knowledge. Um, But it should be done in the service. Implementation science should be done in the service of improving implementation practice. That is our client, so to speak. Uh, and uh, the way we do that, I think, is to produce scientific knowledge that is useful and usable. So Again, not to say that we don't produce scientific knowledge, because we could be in a health system as part of an in-house research unit responding to uh you know, to uh, evaluation needs or assessment needs or other sorts of needs of a health system, Kaiser Permanente could come along to us and say, "Could you give us a, a decision analytics tool to help us better predict who's going to do well in an emergency stay and who's going to be a who's who's going to need a transfer?" Um, that is research in the service of of, of operations and, and super important, but that's not science um, because it's not aimed to produce knowledge that is useful elsewhere uh, or applicable um, beyond the immediate context in which it is generated. So I do think we are, uh, you know, as long as we're going to continue to do implementation science, i.e. implementation research, we're going to be engaged in a scientific enterprise. But that knowledge should be useful and usable, or relevant and practical, if you prefer those terms. Um, So we need to make sure that the questions that we're answering uh, and that we're investigating are relevant and important, that we're addressing the important needs of of our implementation practice stakeholders. But then we also have to find ways to translate that scientific knowledge into usable knowledge and often that's going to take the form of a tool or something like that, something that people can use. That knowledge needs to be repackaged, redesigned into something that is useful. Um, and I think that's where the field of implementation science is has is moving and needs to continue to move. So, so the, the question challenge? we should be asking ourselves is how do we take our theories and our framework our frameworks our methods um, and our research findings and to f- turn them into useful knowledge, in the, often in the form of tools or toolkits for practitioners to use? Can we create a decision tree that might help people? Can we create a decision aid? Can we create a checklist? Um, can we package up these methods in some way um, and provide enough sort of guidance for people to be able to pick up and use them on their own? Even when it comes to measurement, you know, can we develop measures that are pragmatic, you know, uh, still robust and useful, but pragmatic that are brief, um, relatively easy to administer and interpret, don't require a PhD to do that. Um, can we develop them in ways that are uh, where people can tailor them to their unique circumstances and needs and yet still be able to crosswalk uh, those those uh, measures uh, across different settings and contexts so we can still learn, uh and produce cumulative knowledge i do think even measurement you know the onus is on us to make sure that our measures are also practical or pragmatic or useful in that way
2: well i think you're forgetting one important thing expensive right it's really important that we copyright those measures (laughs) that the federal government paid us to develop and then make sure people pay a lot of money for for, to be able to use at any time but i know that's implicit
0: We, we all have boat payments to make right
2: yeah we all have boat payments to make you know that actually brings up something we wanted to talk about we think i think mike and i would agree that measurement is is an essential aspect of any scientific field of study in fact i think we i would at least argue it's foundational that we can't study anything without reliable measurement talk about your contributions to the measurement of implementation
1: constructs sure happy to do that and let me just say now i'm feeling a little daunted because Kevin King is leading this podcast. I am not a <laughs> psychometrician. Let's start with that. I am self-taught. Uh I I did get exposed to uh Uh, measure development uh, methods and so forth as a PhD student in psychology at the University of Michigan. Um, But I am not a psychometrician. That's not the core of my training. I am acutely aware of the limitations of my own expertise. I constantly remind myself that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, Um, but that hasn't stopped me from using my little knowledge to go and do um dangerous things. I,
0: I would say well, Brian, don't don't worry too much because Gavin will just go ahead and tweet <laughs> all of his most incisive critiques. Yeah. about your measurement later. He won't say it now on the podcast. No, I'm so.
2: too chicken. I'm too, I'm very tomato I'm ribs, I'm too chicken to do that now.
1: You can just tack that onto the podcast after we're done with the interview. Um, <laughs> so, so my contributions using the my interest in and whatever skills that I have developed in, in measurement have been in a couple of areas, mostly in, in the development of new measures of organizational readiness for implementing change, um, implementation climate, Uh, implementation outcomes, and currently measures of what we think are plausible mechanisms uh, for some commonly used implementation strategies, such as innovation championing, opinion leadership, practice facilitation, and so forth. I've collaborated with other uh, researchers uh, to develop measures of intersetting constructs from the consolidated framework. And then I've also participated in both individually and as part of a research team in evaluating existing measures uh, in the field of implementation science, uh, working with Carol Lewis and a bunch of other folks on the instrument review project uh, um, sponsored by the uh, Society for Implementation Research Collaboration, and with some uh, R one funding from the National Institutes of Mental Health. So that's sort of the work that I have done in this particular field, and I, I fell into this out of uh, out of uh, two frustrations. Um, that really stretch back to my days as a graduate student and and newly minted assistant professor uh, working with um, very established uh, health services researchers on big national surveys of hospital quality improvement practices and then community health coalitions back in the day when we we were approaching uh, health from that perspective. Um, And those two frustrations really focus on, uh, the first one is really on or construct validity. Um, There's just a mismatch between the construct we want to measure that we're interested in measuring and the measures that we were using to do that and i i, I didn't coin this phrase but the jingle jangle fallacies uh, really kind of capture this and something that i didn't have that term in my mind back in the early uh and mid 90s when i first b- began to feel these frustrations but um you know the jingle jangle fallacies are erroneous assumptions that either two different things are the same because they bear the same name that's the jingle fallacy or two identical or almost identical. Uh, things are different because they're differently labeled the uh, the jangle fallacy. And, uh, you know, having worked with some of the investigators, I was just surprised at how little theorizing or conceptualizing went into the development of these surveys that were going to go nationally. People just sort of said, hey, let's ask about X, Y, Z. And then later we're trying to retrofit these measures, the data we've collected into constructs that nobody sat down prospectively and said this is the construct we want to measure and so that loose fit between our constructs and our operational definitions is something that struck me really early on and then in doing a large review um, back in the mid-2000s of the 48 measures of organizational readiness for change that I had, if you look at the item content it's all over the map you have i mean these folks are saying they're measuring organizational readiness to change. there's almost no overlap conceptually in some cases, but certainly operationally at the item level in what these measures are include. And so it was just struck me like, does anybody know what they're talking about here? Oh, and do we have any sense for what we're really measuring? It uh, made it almost impossible to sort of synthesize what have we learned? Well, what does the research tell us about this? Because the studies, the measures are so incommensurable um, so that's one issue that um that kind of drove me into this area and the second in in doing these uh, reviews of measurements is uh, measures in the field is the frustration that I see is just there's just poor measurement practice in the field. Um, you know, not everybody's going to be a measure developer. Not everybody's interested in that or, you know, it's going to become a psychometrician. But we really should be doing a better job as measure, as users of measures. Um, you see people adding, dropping, and modifying items willy-nilly. Uh, I think the willy-nilly fallacy is right up there with the jingle-jangle fallacy somewhere. <laughs> That's uh, great. You <laughs> heard it here first.
2: Yeah, Mark uh, that
1: implementation <laughs> science podcast, we're going to call it. Know, <laughs> and, and you see people misusing and misinterpreting Quandac alphas, uh, you know, misaligning levels of analysis with levels of theory. I mean, just every measurement, pedestrian measurement um, problem that you can see, you just see it plaguing the field. Um, and I think what we could really use uh, to advance the f- measurement in the field of implementation science is three things. Um, one is we need something like a moonshot initiative uh, similar in implementation science, similar to what you see in the patient-reported outcomes research area, mm-hmm. at least in health. I don't know what it's like in in mental health. Um, we, need, we need a Moonshot initiative, a concentrated systematic effort where you throw a lot of money at there, you recruit a lot of psychometricians and clinicians and, and so forth to get together folks who have expertise in item response theory and modern measurement theory to really help us develop robust item banks for key implementation science constructs so that researchers and practitioners can tailor those measures to their own needs. And yet we can still crosswalk across different studies because those items are calibrated with each other. Um, so that's one thing that we need. We need an investment of some uh, of significant investment in sort of me- improving the measures in the field. Um, second, I think related to that other frustration is we need a primer or a training available for implementation scientists on just good measurement practice. I keep asking my psychometrician colleagues and others you know, would you please write us a paper about do's and don'ts, five things to avoid in using, you know, in using measures in the field and five things you should be doing. Um, that would go a long way, I think. And the third, maybe it's a little bit more pedestrian. It's just we also need better reporting about measures in our in our published studies, because trying to do these reviews of published work, a lot of the information you're looking for on the measures uh, to be able to gauge their reliability and validity uh, is simply not reported. Uh, probably wasn't done, but it, it certainly isn't reported. So I think those are three c- key um, strategies or, or uh, recommendations that I have for for how we move measurement forward in the field.
2: Brian, I, um, I don't think you should ever, I think I need you to take back uh, that you said you're not a psychometrician at heart. And I think you need to, Never say that again. I think you mm-hmm. you you may be thinking of psychometricians uh or measure developers as sort of very narrowly focused on the statistical aspects, you know, the IRT, the confer- the, you know, CFAs, um, you know, sort of all the different ways we can put our measures together. But I, I think everything you said, uh, especially leading from frustration, I feel like the best work really comes from <laughs> frustrations with other people in the field. You know, this is the heart of measurement right thinking about jingle jangle thinking about what are our constructs really really measuring that's everything we do in our lab we look down at the item level If somebody says they're you measuring self-control what items are they using because that's really how that's how you know what they're actually measuring what's what's happening there I, and as you sort of alluded to, sometimes it's like a horror movie jump scare where you overturn the log and there's just a million cockroaches, you know, sort of running around. Sometimes you look under the the hood of the construct people are using at the items, and sometimes, yeah, it's all the same, right? You sort of get that um, uh, that uh, jangle fallacy where everybody's describing it differently, but at the end, they're using the same ten items, and sometimes. It's the jingle fallacy where everybody is labeling things differently um, or labeling things the same, but using all the different items. And I probably totally screwed that up. So folks, rewind the podcast (laughs) to when Brian described the jingle jangle because he got that right. Um, So I I just want to highlight, I think everything you're talking about is spot on for fields in general and certainly, I think, for implementation science that, you know, when we're thinking about construct validity and measurement development, we're not just thinking about the statistical analysis of the items. But we're thinking about everything from item creation. We're thinking about, are we capturing the breadth of the items, not just from the researcher per- perspective, like you said, but also from the clinician perspective, right? From the provider perspective, from the patient perspective, and then thinking all the way forward to how do we get calibrated banks of items that you can do. I just, I, I, I think you also just described a beautiful justification for like a large grant a p50 or you know just a whole broad collaborative research effort i love the idea of a moonshot so that's all my way of just saying man you are on the same page as, as i am in terms of measurement and i have no follow-up questions because you think beautifully.
0: <laughs> i mean i, I just want to point out that you just compared measurement developers to cockroaches and i just want to make sure that that's that's <laughs> solid and in there so that you get canceled for this at some point yes, in the absolutely. near future Kevin. yes um, um, no, I agree. I think your points that you make are so are so uh, are so important and, and insightful. I do think, in the defense of bad measurement. Um How dare oftentimes you, Mike. measures that exist. <laughs> oftentimes measures that exist are, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with this sort of nomothetic versus ideographic distinction. And that's not exactly what I'm trying to get at here. But you have a measure and you're doing a project and you look at the actual items, you look at the construct, you're like, well, this is the I could use this measure so that people in the future could do meta-analyses, but this measure isn't exactly what I'm trying to get at here. So you either adapt that measure, you create your own individual items that are more applicable to your exact study, but then it makes it so you can't include that measure in, um, in later studies, but you're really going for that face validity uh, for your specific study and your specific needs, oftentimes without any idea of what the actual psychometrics are because you got to get your study out and get it done. So oftentimes pragmatic, practical concerns and um, individualized concerns prevent bad measurement has to be done in the moment. And we're also working on, you know, these, these grant cycles that really preclude developing measures that are good, robust measures. You know, if you have to wait five years until mm-hmm. your your next cycle and your first cycle is spent on measurement development, you're never going to get to that research question that you want to ask. So there are real practical limitations in the field, but I do feel, uh, regardless of that, I do feel like some of the solutions that you offer, I think are great ones. I love the idea of having kind of uh, item banks and in particular item banks that people are contributing data to in the future so that um, there can be a little bit of this choosing of measures or self-creation of ideographic measures for your individual study that are still based on items that have some uh, evidence for their quality and robustness. So anyway, just a few thoughts.
1: I, I have a lot of empathy for my colleagues. Uh, this is not a, a you know, a blame my colleagues for poor measurement practice. They engage in these measurement practices for a very good reason, <laughs> which is we don't have good measures to begin with. There are often way too long. Uh, uh, they are uh, too generic or general um, to be sort of specific enough uh, to provide that kind of precision or practical utility that you're looking for. It's not even often, they're not even measures available for the construct that people care most about. Yeah. Um, so they there are good reasons why we see poor measurement practice along the way. And I think the solution here is twofold. One is to to do a better job developing measures. And again, IRT really came into uh, into health services research and, and implementation science long after I finished my graduate training. Uh, it, it migrated over from education um, long after that. So I never got any. First-hand exposure to it, but I, so, so forgive me if I'm being a little naive, but it does seem like there's potential there using IRT-type methods for maybe finding that that balance or finding a way to balance the tension between sort of measures that are standardized and comparable and uh, measures that can be uh, highly tailored uh, and uh, and really kind of speak can can include items that really speak to the to the needs of the of the measure user.
0: Sure, sure. I want to point out one last thing before we transition. Maybe Kevin has a thought as well. Sorry. Um, uh, I do think that the way that you developed the uh, acceptability of uh, implementation measure or intervention measure, the feasibility, the FIM, the IAM, and the AIM, they're used so widely you did that using scenario-based questions and had people complete the measures and then you, comp- you, you computed your psychometrics based on those scenario-based questions. Now, since then, of course, people have used this in the real world a lot and that's fantastic. But what I really love about that scenario-based questioning question approach, and we actually took this approach and we've developed a measure that um, just nearly accepted for publication is it greatly speeds uh, uh, the process of measurement development when, you, when you're using scenarios rather than trying to use real world applications. Now, it may move us a little bit away from like true generalizability, psychometric robustness, etc. But at least it gets the measure into the hands of the people that need it uh, quickly. And that's one of the challenges we're facing. So I do appreciate that approach.
1: Um, yeah. And those scenarios are artificial situations. And what we argued in the, in the manuscript that or the article that included those measures is, let's see how these measures perform under controlled conditions, where we know what the right answer is or what you know, um, uh, and then and, and at least under those sort of experimental or controlled conditions, see how they perform before we sort of release them into the wild and then see how they do in, in the real world. Um, I, I appreciate those, those compliments, Mike, and what I really enjoyed working on on those is the, constr- the the ideas of acceptability, appropriateness, and feasibility, even as Enola Proctor in her original implementation outcomes paper mm-hmm. note, they're very closely related, there are subtle differences among them, um, and and so forth. And it was obvious to me that it was an opportunity to try to sharpen up the distinctions a little bit among them conceptually, even if empirically they're often the same. It's very difficult for people to say, oh, this is acceptable but not appropriate, or this is appropriate but not acceptable. Usually it's it's either they're both or they're neither. Um, but conceptually, can we can we clarify and sharpen up the distinctions a little bit here? And then more importantly, can we make sure that the items that we're using are measuring the The construct of interest and not related constructs to really try to get direct and sort of pure, if you will, in quotation marks, items that are just reflecting the construct and nothing but the construct Um, and to be able to show that you can... can, You can get that kind of conceptual uh, separation in your measures under controlled conditions. You can show statistically, you know, using confirmatory factor analysis that yes, in fact, this measure is, these items are not measuring this other construct to deal with that, that uh, jingle fallacy or jangle fallacy or whichever one it is was really exciting. And, you know, there are lots of, there's still more work to be done on those measures. I wish is going to do that work, good luck on them. I've, like I said, I've turned my attention to other measures, but it's been really a, a pleasant surprise uh, and really quite um, satisfying to see people really taking those measures and using them as as often as they have.
2: Well, that's great. So we, let's, um, we just want to keep an eye out of time. We're, we're um, coming up towards the end of our time. So I think we're going to turn to our quiz. Um, so Brian, you are, uh, I think we've already started referencing you as a meme on the podcast because I feel like when um, when we ask people sort of who were important people in the field to them, either as a mentor or as a colleague, who are influential people, I think your name came up more than anybody else's um, on this. So, uh, and uh, our understanding is you have a stellar reputation in the field for mentoring. So, I came up with a quiz for you um, on what does it mean to be a good mentor. So um, I'll lead with the first question. Um, And I just want to remind you, I know you're um, one of our biggest fans uh, of the podcast, (laughs) but I'll just remind you and the rest of them.
0: Just for the listeners, uh, Brian's face indicates that that statement that Kevin just made is not true. Uh,
2: You know, there's really no evidence to say because this is an audio only (laughs) podcast. So I think we'll just, it's a mystery. It's really hard to gauge um, his feedback on that. But just just to be clear, Brian, for you and also for Mm -hmm. our listeners who may not Be familiar, there is a prize at the end of the quiz. The prize at the end of the quiz is, I will write your next out-of-office message. Um, My out-of-office message are widely regarded in the field for being uh, witty, hilarious, and also a little poignant. Um, And again, I will take no feedback on that perspective (laughs) uh, on this. So um, if you get a uh, passing score on this, um, you'll you'll, um, just need to contact me the next time you need an out-of-office message and I, I will write something uh, I will actually give you several suggestions um, that you can choose from among. So the first question on, on how to be a good mentor, from the perspective of a trainee, what is the optimal way to schedule a meeting with your mentor? Do you give them a doodle poll with at least 40 to 50 options for days and times? Um, do you just email back and forth? Do you do a when is good poll? Um, do you tackle them in the hall as they speed walk past your office, trying not to be noticed? Or do you approach them at a conference after they've given a talk so that you can finally be in the same room at the same time as them? Which of oh. these is the best, best way to schedule the meeting? Uh,
1: definitely the last option. Okay, absolutely. last
2: option. And that was scored. Um, that is correct. Approach them at a conference where it's the only time you can guarantee that you'll be in the same room at the same time as them. Um, you get 250 points for that
0: one. Very, very good. Very good. All right. So uh, next question is, when providing feedback on written work, what's the best way to give feedback that will improve your trainee's writing? A, detailed line edits that change with every draft. B, just cross out large sections of text and write ugh next to it. C, reply with an email that just says, try again. Or D, treat it like a paper review and write a narrative reaction in the paper with suggestions for improvement?
1: This is a trick question, right? Um, I would argue, based on my experience with my mentor back in the day, simply send it back with the email saying, try again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Kevin, um, I don't I, he Kevin hasn't listed the correct responses, so I don't know what the correct oh, response is. So, sorry,
2: yeah, actually that is correct. And you get a um, uh, now this is reverse coded, so we're gonna give you your correct answer. You're gonna get a score of false uh, for this. But this <laughs> this is reverse coded. Now there's a bonus question. Uh, what's the correct ratio of positive to negative feedback that you should be giving to your trainees? What sort of percentage positive versus negative feedback?
1: I see. Am I is this a multiple choice question?
2: Oh no, this is just this is it's a bonus question so just I'm going to see if you can guess it.
1: Uh let's see. Uh I would say 30% positive with uh, sort of 15% on the front and 15% on the back. I think they okay. call that a A turd sandwich? (laughs) Okay, that's actually incorrect. The correct
2: ratio is 0% positive and 100% (laughs) uh, negative feedback. Um, I don't understand why my trainees never send me written work um, and tell me I need to get better at my job. But um, I will say that is the correct answer. But that's okay. You still got um, the reverse coded false. Correct on that one. Okay, let's say you're doing research with your mentees. Um, and you need to decide who's going to be an author. What's the ethical way to determine authorship on research conducted with your mentees? Is it A, your first author always, B, your last author always, uh, C, the trainee writes the paper and you let them be a middle author if they're nice enough to you, (laughs) Um, D, you conduct research with your mentees, and... I forget. I, I, these are actually labeled v, uh, in Roman numerals, so I'm trying to convert them into letters. E. Okay, the next E. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I can't count the alphabet letters. Um, you have an explicit and ongoing conversation with your mentees about authorship roles and use the credit taxonomy to determine authorship. Which of those is correct? And I'm happy to read them back to you again.
1: Read that last one again. Okay. You have an
2: explicit and ongoing conversation with your mentees about authorship roles and use the credit taxonomy to determine authorship.
1: Oh, I like that idea. I haven't used that. I would choose that one. Probably Probably a best practice I haven't adopted yet. Okay. This
2: is, by the way, the credit is the contributor roles taxonomy, but I swear um, it actually works out to credit, c r e d i c r e d i t, and it is a taxonomy that includes spreadsheets for good, and that is correct. Um, so you get a very much agree uh, on that one. Fantastic. Yes, the credit taxonomy um, is actually quite useful for sort of figuring out who has done what uh to get authorship on what paper. Still is challenging to figure out who should be fourth versus fifth fifth author, to be honest, in application.
0: All right. You're doing quite well, which I know uh is surprising since you've been listening to the podcast. Most people don't actually win this uh this yeah. prize from Kevin, but you're doing quite well. So uh final question. What is the correct amount? of work life balance for trainees is it one uh, 90% work 20% life is it uh b 70% work 30% life is it roman numeral 3 50% work 50% life or is it h balance
1: <laughs> definitely h
2: Okay, fantastic. That also is surprisingly correct answer that I will give you um, that is I'll give you a uh, a dummy code of one for that um, compared to a zero. Um, and so with a dummy code of one, I very much agree, a false reverse coded and 250 points you've actually won our quiz. Congratulations. Brian, next time you go out of town, I will happily write an out of office message and I promise it will be much more co- much more coherent uh, than the scoring system that I use on these quizzes.
1: Well, Kevin, as soon as we're done here, you better start riding because I'm heading to Mount Rainier tomorrow morning for a okay. uh, long de- three-day weekend.
2: Okay, going to Mount Rainier
1: for a three-day weekend. So you'll
2: be back on Sunday. Having done the
1: podcast, yes.
2: Okay. Uh, so for I any, will, for any
0: uh, I'm, I'm potential sure burglars, uh, this podcast will come out after Brian returns from Mount Rainier.
2: Yeah, but if you're curious, a, um, the code on his door is um, 1234, <laughs> just like from Spaceballs. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll I'll I will immediately reply and we'll put this in the show notes, my the out of office
0: messages that I'll give you the options of. Fantastic. All right. So we're gonna launch into some rapid fire questions here at the very end. What are one or two of the most important implementation science publications that you feel any budding implementation science researcher should read?
1: What level? Of implementation researcher. I think know. you Ooh, said a budding. Entry? Yeah, a budding. A budding. Yeah. Uh, I would go back to Enola Proctor's 2009 or 2011 articles, Um, sort of, I think, really, every time I see her, I thank her for having written those articles. They were really foundational to the field and I think really important. A, A field is largely, I think, defined by the outcomes that it worries a lot about and that it focuses on and really helping us to understand what implementation outcomes are and how they distinct, they differ or distinct from sort of the health outcomes or service outcomes um, really helped us understand a little bit more about what is unique or different or distinct about implementation science.
0: Yeah. And these were the articles that outlined all of the major implementation outcomes with, I think, four of those outcomes really being a form of adoption one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other outcomes being cost, uh, I think sustainability. And at one point I could name them all off the top of my head, but um, yeah, okay, great. We will post those in the sh- in the show notes. Any other articles that jump to mind? Uh,
1: I also like the um, article that Megan Lanefall and Jeff Curran and Renad Batis produced called Scoping Implementation Science for the Beginner, Locating Yourself on the Subway Line of Translational Research. I think that's a really helpful infographic, if you will, or heuristic uh, visual for sort of picturing where implementation science fits on the sort of translational research continuum. It
2: has a really cool um, uh, visual that looks like it's like a subway map. It's a very cool sort of like mapping different subway lines. Um, Any shout outs to people in your work or personal life? Besides, of course, yourself, because everyone on this podcast always shouts out Brian Weiner.
1: Uh, Sure. To Megan Lewis, my spouse, who has been an inspiration and a prod, as well as a collaborator for some of the most um, important, at least to me, most important work that I've done in the field, including... Really strongly encouraging me to accept the invitation from one of the publishers in our field to edit a textbook for graduate health professional students, think MPH students, uh, on uh, title, and it's titled Practical Implementation Science uh, Moving Evidence into Action, and really gave me and all of the chapter contributors an opportunity to. Push ourselves to make the implementation science that we have done and that we know about in the field practical in a way that would speak to uh, health professional students who are seeking, you know, a graduate degree.
2: Fantastic, and we will make sure to link to a free downloadable PDF of that textbook in the show notes. Um, kidding. We oh. will just we will we'll link to the uh, the book page at Springer.
1: And one other shout out, of course. Uh, let me join the chorus in making a shout out to Carol Lewis, who, as your listeners know, is now a deputy director for the Center for Translation Research and Implementation Science, or Citrus, at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, prior to her ascending into the heavens to NIH uh, she was a uh, a collaborator a senior investigator over at uh, Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute she and I have had a uh, have up to that point had a, a long-standing maybe 11 12year uh research collaboration and that has meant a great deal to me It's influenced my my career in ways uh, that are co- in countless numbers of ways and in uh, really um it, it's been a Quite a, quite an enjoyable uh, journey. Do you, do you find now that Kara's uh,
0: not you not working with you as, anymore? Not not your mentee anymore. Do you send far fewer emails that just say try again? <laughs>
1: <laughs> she, I I do miss that collaboration a lot. I emailed her the other week and just said I miss the sort of weekly meetings that we would have on the various research projects that we've gone along. But to have a uh, collaborator uh, to kind of you know stimulate intellectual conversations and curiosities. And she's not only super smart, but she's highly ambitious and really, really good at making things happen. Uh, and that's just been a really, a, a sheer pleasure to, to 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 collaborate with her with her all, over all these years.
0: Uh, are you on any social media? I know you are actually. So why don't you, what, can you tell us what your social media handles are and how people can reach you if they want to talk with you directly?
1: Uh, sure. So I'm on Twitter. I will never call it X. I'm at, uh, at BJ Weiner. Uh, and I'm also on threads, Huh? Uh, threads, that is, uh, uh, at uh, BJ Weiner 408.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's so great to have had you here. Um, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked today's podcast, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or just give it a different name and see if it changes your perception of it, like the jingle fallacy. Or is it the jangle fallacy? If you didn't like today's show, then send us an email that just reads, try again. I'm on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter at That IS Podcast, and Kevin is at kmking underscore psych. All the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Brian Weiner, we'll catch you next time. That implementation science podcast is going to take a bit of a well-deserved break. We'll take a few weeks off and come back to you for season two.
1: I'm out of the office with limited access to email. I'm spending my weekend on a volcano that could wipe out all of Western Washington tomorrow or 9,000 years from now, who knows, what's science? In the event of an emergency, well, I hope it's not an eruption because we'll have bigger problems than whatever you're emailing me about. If all goes well, I'll reply to your email when I return on Monday.